Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. But first, I want to go down this road here that I touched on a little bit yesterday. And that is the profound disconnect between free speech and so many people in this day and age, particularly those on college and university campuses who would rather shut down and silence speakers they dislike than actually engage them. And this happened earlier this week at Ryerson University in Toronto, where a panel called (laughs) Stifling Free Speech on Campus was shut down by the university. You can't get more self-fulfilling than that because they said they couldn't guarantee the safety of those attending and those speaking, which included Jordan Peterson, Faith Goldie, and a psychologist uh, that I wasn't familiar with, as well as my guest for this segment, Professor Gad Saad, who is a professor at Concordia University of Marketing and also the Concordia University Research Chair in Evolutionary Behavioral Sciences and Darwinian Consumption. Professor Gad Saad, it's good to have you on the show. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Real pleasure. Look, you have spoken out extensively and, and really a, a small number of people in the academy that are really willing to say we, we need to put a stop to a lot of these forces that are trying to silence debate and silence discussion. And you've been at free speech forums. And I, I don't think the censors realize how much they're feeding into the very message that you're raising. When we have this event at Ryerson University that was supposed to take place, literally called the stifling of free speech on university campuses, and then it is canceled. How, how does anyone think this is justifiable? Well, you know, it just it leaves me breathless, right? Because, I mean, if I, you know, I'm, one of the things that I'm known for in my public engagement is uh, my satire and my sarcasm. And uh, this, this beats any satire that I could come up with, right? I mean, what irony that the message that we're exactly, uh, what, that we were meant to discuss in this event ends up happening before our eyes. And I guess this irony is lost on those intellectual terrorists. The part that I find the most problematic about this is that they're, they're never candid about the fact that we just don't want to have this dialogue. They tend to shroud it in terms of, oh, well, you know, security and, and safety reasons. And that was precisely what happened here. A statement from Ryerson said, after a thorough security review, the university has concluded that Ryerson is not equipped to provide the necessary level of public safety for the event to go forward. So, First off, it's problematic because apparently having a forum with a couple of academics is a public safety risk, but moreover that the university uses that as its excuse for not being able to have it. Well, and that logic, by the way, I satirized it yesterday in a message that I sent out on my social portals. I referred exactly to the logic that you mentioned, but I also referred to a a decision in Sydney, Australia, where they decided to not build a synagogue because that would... Uh, tr- you know, trigger some s- security concerns, to which I then argued that we now have a new uh, medical uh, paradigm. Uh, in order to stop brain cancer, you simply behead healthy patients, and this <laughs> ensures that that problem is eradicated. And then just repeat that logic for all other organs, and you pretty much eradicate all diseases. Yeah, it's the modern adaptation of that old expression, cutting off your nose to spite your face. I mean, how far are we prepared to go to preempt something that could cause a minor inconvenience when a far greater threat is coming from the supposed remedy to this? Exactly. I mean, think about it. If a, if a kid goes in with a fake gun to a uh, convenience store to rob uh, $25, society de- decides 
that this is an intolerable threat of violence, and they punish him accordingly in the, in the criminal system. But if a bunch of thugs shut down free speech, with, which at the, at the collective societal level is a much greater threat to our freedom than some kid going in with a toy gun to steal, uh, you know, $25, then people yawn and apathy and move along. I mean, it's simply grotesque, and people don't appreciate how we are slowly inch, inching to the abyss of infinite darkness. Earlier in this just conversation, you used the term intellectual terrorists. Are you talking about the people that are trying to protest these events to shut them down, or, or the administrators that capitulate to them? I was talking about the ones who try to shut them down, but in a sense, it's really a tango. These guys, the, the ones who are trying to uh, shut everything down, would find you know, would, 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 get no, would garner no success if they didn't have administrators who perhaps, just to be charitable, maybe some of these administrators actually don't share uh, their tactics, but they are so overcome with cowardice, they so wish to take the, what they consider to be the path of less res, least resistance that they capitulate. So you really need cowardly uh, administrators for the you know, the endless threats of violence to be successful. So in a sense, they're, they're both part of the same greater problem. You know, Ryerson University has actually, uh, as part of the school, uh, an organization called the Center for Free Expression. And I find it interesting. And to be clear, from that very Center for Free Expression, James Turk had written a piece this week condemning the decision to cancel it. But it means that this great commitment that Ryerson has to open discourse and free expression is in a lot of ways theatrical. I mean, when the you-know-what hits the fan and there is a test condition set put around it, it's a lot easier just to say, oh, well, you know, there's a safety risk. We can't have free speech here. It's completely empty rhetoric. As a matter of fact, when I uh, became aware of the article that the gentleman in question had written uh, under the auspices of that, the Center for Free Expression, I then tweeted at him and I said, oh, you referred to us as conservative academics with odious uh, positions. Why don't you come on my show, The Sad Truth, and we could discuss which of my positions you consider uh, odious so that we can sort of clarify it. Uh, do you want to guess whether he responded to me? <laughs> I, I'm going to put my money on no. There you go. Well, unreal, yet at the same time, unsurprising. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. We are back. You're listening to the Chorus Radio Network and The Roy Green Show. I'm Andrew Lawton in for Roy with you this weekend here as we talk with Professor Gad Saad, who is a free speech advocate. And I say that with a level of disappointment. I mean, it shouldn't be controversial for an academic to stand up for free thought and a free exchange of ideas and intellectual freedom and academic freedom. But it is. It is controversial. He's somewhat of a pariah in the academic community. And I wanted to actually ask you about that, Professor Gad Saad, because one of the challenges we see is that academia has always been dominated by by radicals, in effect. And I don't mean that in a negative sense necessarily, but people who have had to be radical to push the envelope to develop the research that is now really mainstream today. And I go back to years ago now, that the debate at Western University between Philippe Rushton and, and David Suzuki, a debate that clearly you'd never be able to have in, in 2017. Was there one turning point at which it, it became such a problem to even think of having dialogue, or has this really just been a long time coming? It's been a long time coming, and as a matter of fact, uh, my next book, which is currently tentatively titled Death of the West by a Thousand Cuts, if you like uh, 
goes through this historical trajectory. You really needed a perfect confluence of faux intellectual movements. So postmodernism, which rejects objective truth, radical feminism, which argues that there are no innate sex differences, identity politics, intersectionality, cultural and moral relativism. None of these faux intellectual movements would have been sufficient to lead us to where we are now. But put them all together in this cocktail, this, this tsunami of nonsense, and then 40 years down the line, where we are currently, where we're currently at, that's where you end up, a complete departure from reason, because you have a complete nihilistic view of the world where, you know, we just slash and burn reason. And so what I'm going to be doing in my, in my book is, is sort of going through this historical trajectory, which then leads us to what I've coined ostrich parasitic syndrome, which is, uh, I mean, it sounds as though I'm, I'm being satirical, but I'm, I'm actually being very genuine. There, there's all sorts of examples in the, in, in the animal kingdom where a, an animal is infected with a brain pathogen or brain parasite that leads it to take decisions that are suboptimal, if not deadly for its survival. Uh, well, ostrich parasitic syndrome, in my view, is this collective psychosis that we are seeing. So, for example, political correctness, you know, I'd rather be politically correct so that I don't appear non-racist rather than trigger my natural instinct to survive and defend my children. And so I will go through all of these things in my forthcoming book. If you do take an evolutionary behavioral science perspective, obviously your field of research right now, and approach that issue, are humans unique in doing that? Is this this just a human phenomenon? Well, I think the fact that we have a prefrontal cortex that's very big, that's evolved to lead to higher intelligence, uh, in a sense, yes. So other animals are also parasitized by brain worms. But in their case, it's literally a biological agent that is parasitizing their brains. As far as I know, we are the only animal or the only species that is infected by a parasite that is based on a collect- collection of bad ideas, right? <laughs> so it's not really just a metaphor. I'm literally arguing that the collection of these bad ideas is a form of parasite, but the parasite is not a pathogen, but if you'd like, it's a pathogenic idea that renders you completely useless in defending yourself. If we do take such a borderline clinical approach to this, does that mean that it's not something that we can stop, that it's just innate in how people view the world? Well, I mean, it is innate only in the sense that there'll be within a distribution of people, some some who are likely to be to fall prey to that disease, while others won't. The question is, are there any intervention strategies that we can use to try to inoculate people against uh, contracting uh, ostrich parasitic syndrome? And the reason why I get so engaged, in, you know, publicly, is because my my hope is that some of these people will, event- if they are sufficiently exposed to information, to reason, to logic, to science, to evidence, uh, we could pull them out of the quicksand uh, quicksand of lunacy. Now, for some folks, it's too late. They've contracted a form of uh, ostrich parasitic syndrome that is fatal. It is spread, it is metastasized, and they're (laughs) gone. But others could be recouped, and in a sense, I fight for them. 
we've seen how much of a bandwagon approach there is on a lot of these things. So this past few weeks, for example, we've had everyone tearing down Confederate statues, and then that merges into what we see in Canada this week, which people trying to take John A. McDonald's name off of schools. And, and then you have local city councils in Canada that are trying to do more following on what has become really now an, a, a push for all of these social justice causes because everyone has cover now because, oh, well, everyone else is doing it, so we can do it here. Do you think that that will lose momentum at some point and, and people will start realizing like, for example, academics on the far left that all of a sudden realize, you know what, my right to free speech might be threatened under this. Or do you think that that self-interest or that enlightened self-interest is too far removed from what we're seeing now for it to really result in a tangible shift? Well, I think what needs to happen is there needs to be a critical mass of people who rise up in unison so that those who are truly enemies of reason become marginalized, right? Uh, it, it takes more than uh, Jordan Peterson and Gatsad and a few others, as you said, a handful of others to speak out. Now, of course, we're, we're a good start. We hopefully can start the domino effect. But if other people don't feel sufficiently empowered and invigorated to get into the battle, we will lose it. So really what... what the whole thing rests on is that everyone, people ask me, you know, what, what, what can I do, professor, to, to contribute? Well, I understand that you may not have a big forum, but when your professor says something that is nonsensical, challenge him or her politely. When your friends on Facebook say something that you disagree with, challenge them respectfully and politely. In other words, don't be apathetic hoping that others will carry the battle of, the, of ideas for you. Everybody has a voice. If everybody rises, then we'll quickly realize that we are in the majority and we will win the battle of ideas. If we all are too concerned about buying our groceries tonight and our daughter's uh, graduation ceremony tomorrow, then we will lose the battle because the other guys, while they are in the minority, they are well organized and they are very motivated. So rise up and contribute to the battle of ideas. I think that's so important because right now the status quo, which is one that overwhelmingly supports censorship, has put the stakes so high for those who challenge them that we are talking about job loss for many people. We are talking about social isolation. So I can understand the challenges, but you're saying it is really an imperative for people to stand up and disrupt that. Well, and the, and the way that I would analogize what you just said, because I receive innumerable letters and emails and messages asking me, you know, wh you know Professor, I want to contribute, but I'm afraid for reason X, Y, Z. And then my rebuttal is, look, when you go to war, I mean literal, physical war, do you go to war with a guarantee that you won't get in any way hurt? Well, here we don't have a physical war, but we have a battle of ideas which, by the way, might lead to physical war eventually. What guys like me and others who are you know, engaging in the public exchange of ideas, we're trying to thwart that. We're trying to ensure that we never get far along down the line where the only solution will be war. So in the same way that you can't go into physical battle without expecting that there'll be zero chance of you getting hurt, you also can't properly get engaged in the battle of ideas while being assured that there's zero chance to your job and zero chance of you getting a worse grade from a dishonest professor. That's just part of the reality. I mean, and then I, I ask them when they, I respond when they ask me, do you not think that I've taken great risks both personally and professionally for the things that I do? Do you know how many jobs did not come my way in other uh, cities uh, where I could have been a professor that I might have wanted to move to because people were afraid to offer me a job because, quote, I'm controversial. So we all have a, a burden to bear. And uh, don't be a coward. Face it and move forward.
Joining me on the line, Professor Gad Saad, a marketing professor at Concordia University and a research chair in evolutionary behavioral sciences and Darwinian consumption. You can also catch him on YouTube as host of The Sad Truth, Sad with Two A's. Professor Gad Saad, great to talk to you, sir. Thank you so much for your time today and for your work on this issue. Really important, and I appreciate it very much. My pleasure. Thank you. You know, Jordan Peterson once told me when I guest co-hosted a show with him, and he's, of course, along that same vein, professors that are standing out against political correctness and standing out for free speech. He said, you don't get to choose to have no punishment. He said, you're going to get punished for speaking out and fighting it, and you're going to end up getting punished for not. So he said, you only get to choose which punishment. You don't get to choose no punishment at all. And it's along the vein of what Professor Gadsad was saying earlier that I think people need to realize this is coming one way or another. Is there a toll to stand up against it? Yes. But is it worth fighting? Absolutely. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I first learned of female genital mutilation as a regular practice in some cultures and religious and geographic backgrounds probably about four or five years ago. And it was a passing mention from someone who is from another part of the world and has not experienced it personally in her family, but is part of a, a group. She was a, a Muslim who, who does have a problem with this in certain areas. And this isn't just a, a religious practice. It's a cultural practice as well. And it's one that has some geographical roots. But one thing that struck me when she raised the issue several years ago is that she said no one was really paying attention to it. And I think by and large, she was very correct. I didn't hear anything about it in the media with regularity until probably the past year, where not only is there more coverage of this practice itself around the world, but also more awareness and understanding of the fact that it happens in Canada or to Canadians. There was a story, a couple of stories, actually, in the Toronto Star and the Global News website a few months ago that looked at this very problem of doctors who practice female genital mutilation coming to Canada and it was border officials having to learn what to look for and learn what the equipment looks like if they see it and it was also a case more difficultly to track is bringing young girls out of the country to have the practice done and then returning and then we have this compounded with the fact that there was that doctor in Dearborn, Michigan just a couple of months ago who was arrested and charged with dozens if not hundreds of these types of things. And there was a really, really interesting piece in the Toronto Star earlier this week looking at a particular sect where women in this have said that they actually have had this practice, this female genital mutilation or female genital cutting, FGM or FGC, done in Canada, in Canada. And the research on this particular sect is coming from an initiative called Sahio, or Sahio rather, which has found that 80% of Dawoodi Bora women surveyed have undergone this, and two of the study's participants said it happened in Canada's borders. I want to welcome into the show the co-founder of this very initiative, Shahida Tavawala Kirtane, who joins me on the line from all the way in India. Shahida, thank you so much for joining me today. It's really great speaking with you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for inviting me, and I'm really happy that uh, we are able to now bring this uh, discussion uh, you know, to the public and, and have a dialogue about it uh, in, in an open forum. How long has this been an issue that you've been aware of in, in your community and in those of the people you work with? So 
So um, I first came to know about this practice when, as a child, uh, my mom had undergone the procedure and she wanted to protect me. And from a very young age, she educated me about what this uh, khatna, it's, the procedure is called khatna, and she educated me about what the procedure was. And uh, that's from that, from a young age, I've been uh, informed and, and told to be wary uh, of not, you know, not going with anybody who tries to, you know, tell you that let's go for candy. Usually those are some of the um, reasons given to take children for the practice, to perform the practice. And so I have known about this since a very young age. I know that it's not exclusively a Muslim issue. I know it, it's one that has certain cultures and subsets. And in the case of this particular research you've done here, a particular sect. But what is the reason it's done? Because oftentimes I think there's a false comparison made with male circumcision. But the rationale that I understand for the two are, are very different from one another generally. Uh-huh. So... Um for this practice, the reasons that are the justifications that are given for FGMC are, tend to be religious, you know, health and hygiene, um, obviously sexual control and uh, culture, you know, marriageability, identity. Uh, all of these are, are reasons that are given for perpetuating the practice and, you know, uh, to keep the girls pure, virginal and pure and, you know, to pre- uh, control f- promiscuity before and after marriage, uh, you know, even enhance uh, spirituality and, and, and genital cleanliness, beautification. All of these are various reasons that are given. Um, and um, so these are, uh, these are some. And in, in our survey, uh, these reasons were also, quote, uh, um, stated, um, religious religion being, the, being the, the, the one of the biggest reasons followed uh, by um, uh, religious reasons followed by, uh, you know, to curb sexual arousal and uh, health and hygiene. Mm. So, yeah. The women that you spoke to who had undergone this, were they, how, how was their response to it? I mean, did they know that it was wrong uh, in, at a certain point in their lives and then stop uh, understanding that? Or did they change their opinion on it? Did they all think this was normal? I'm curious, the women who have had this happen, if they all went the road that your mother did or if some of them actually thought, no, 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 this is normal and this is what was meant to happen to me. Mm-hmm. So ours, Andrew, was an anonymous survey. We didn't... Uh, interact with uh, with uh, our respondents um so um uh, but we have had other conversations with women from the community and a lot of them uh, do believe that it is normal it is part of tradition and culture uh some of them don't even remember uh undergoing the procedure as a child so um you know they they have uh forgotten about it or they you know they have blocked it from their memory Explain a little bit for those not familiar with it. What is the community in question here? Right. So uh, I'm, I belong to the Daudi Bora community, and uh, we are a, a subsect of Ismaili Shias. Um, we uh, hail from Yemen, and from Yemen, uh, you know, they were persecuted and, and well, not persecuted, but they, they changed their base from Yemen and moved to uh, the coast of India, Gujarat in specific. And uh, we are a trader community. Uh, Vora means trader and uh, very, very um, uh, progressive. Uh, our women are, are highly educated. We have a lot of doctors, lawyers, engineers. Uh, and uh, so this is one one practice which kind of uh, is, is, is 
it's confusing for a lot of mm-hmm. people who know that you know who are familiar with the com- community as to why it happens yeah and that's something that strikes me as peculiar as well because i've always known the ismaili community in general not just yours specifically but the broader ismaili muslim sector as being very progressive and how does something like this still remain in a community that has otherwise been so progressive in so many di- other areas right so um uh, andrew um Again, the the reasons for this practice, uh, it, it is a very, very deeply rooted uh, cultural practice. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the fact that uh, it, it is also, uh, well, uh, it is made, the, the, although religion has nothing to do with it, we are told that we, it is one of the religious uh, requirements. Um, so uh, that is another reason for the practice to be, uh, you know, to continue uh, performing khatna on on young girls so uh, society societal norm it's it's so it's it's become a societal norm and uh, people just uh, do it uh, to you know to conform and I guess the most concerning part from a Canadian perspective, obviously most of my audience being in Canada right now, is that this is not something that is just happening in some country somewhere else in the world, which is still problematic, but it even hits home more when we find this literally happening in Canada. And We know going back a couple of months, as I said at the top of the show, there have been stories of FGM practitioners coming into Canada. We've also known of cases of young girls being taken out of Canada for this. You're saying that you found participants in your survey that said this happened in Canada and this is not something that is is conjecture these are people that have said yes it happened to me and it happened in Canada uh-huh uh, so two of our 18 uh, respondents said that the procedure was performed committed on them in Canada and uh, um, some of them uh, may have been taken out of the country you know vacation cutting is is another concern for Canadian uh, girls who are at risk so um, uh, uh, like you said, uh, it does happen on Canadian soil, and which is a big reason why Canada was, must now wake up and address the issue because it's already people have, you know, uh, there have been, you know, you must have heard of the Nagarwala case in the USA. And, uh, you know, the fact that uh, it is happening on Canadian soil uh, makes it important for uh, everybody to, you know, um, step up and, and pay attention to this. How do you think the issue is best tackled? Because obviously from an immigration perspective, the officials can look out for certain things and doctors and nurses and any sort of medical worker can look out for it. But more culturally, I find that, and this is the reason I wanted to speak with you today, there isn't a broad understanding of it. So I think awareness is the first part for people to understand that this is an issue. But how should we go about really trying to combat this? Yeah. Um, So uh, um, the thing is that this, the fem- uh, female genital mutilation or cutting is is again uh, like i stated earlier it's a deeply rooted uh, cultural practice and uh, you know uh, laws and and law enforcement alone will not bring about change and so the change also needs to be in in the attitude and behavior towards the pra- towards the practice amongst you know practicing communities uh, also uh, we need we cannot just look at a law in isolation or any, for that matter we look at a- any one approach in isolation it has to be a multi-pronged approach and for canada we have to have the right balance between prosecution and prevention and um, uh, I, I, I strongly believe that we must engage all the stakeholders, which include, uh, you know, uh, uh, they include health professionals, 
that includes you know pediatricians gynecologists gps midwives nurses uh, mm-hmm. uh, child protection officers uh, teachers police officers immigration services uh, and of course legal professionals so uh, there has to be a, a, a stakeholder uh, engagement and sensitization uh, and uh, especially because of the uh, gap in knowledge, uh, gap in uh, knowledge especially amongst professionals sensitization and awareness creation workshops are are one way to you know uh, educate uh, all the stakeholders uh, we also need to look at risk assessment uh, protocols do we have established risk assessment pro- protocols for professionals um on on uh, we have to look at protection of girls and of course uh, provision of care for survivors so these are just some of some of the ways that uh, canada can and can work on the issue and I, we've already uh, start we've done a, a good bit bit of work by coming up with really good law but uh, very often uh, for the law to be implemented we have to empower uh, all uh, you know yeah. all the people in the chain uh, to uh, address this issue effectively. Well, especially because it's happening in private behind closed doors, so it's not like there is an easy way to know if someone is a victim of this. So I think when you speak about risk assessment, that's a huge part of it. I think medical practitioners knowing what to look out for and who to look out for has to be a part of it as well. But that idea of prevention is so important because we can talk about enforcing the law and arresting and prosecuting people that do this, which I agree is a priority, but we're talking about something that is so traumatic for the actual people involved. And, and you can repair some of the damage uh, in, in some cases through surgery, but the best case scenario is obviously that this never happens to someone in the first place. So I have to ask uh, along that vein, Shahid, have you found there has been a willingness for, I mean, the Muslim community in this case, and that's the community you're approaching this from, in actually tackling this? Do you find that there is a willingness for them to share, hey, this is not what we do in Canada, this is not healthy, or has that been a, a challenge for you? Um, so, um, um, with, with regards to uh, Muslims, uh, especially the Dawdi Bora community, uh, a lot. Our, our survey was uh, um, uh, an uh, online survey, and it was uh, exploratory online survey. So, uh, a lot of uh, our respondents uh, had access to you know internet, and eighty uh, percent of our survey respondents said that they do, they do not wish for this practice to continue, you know, with their daughters and continue amongst the community. So uh, that is one indication that that uh, you know attitudes are changing. Behave, you know, people's uh, uh, people want to uh, give, uh, you know, abandon the practice. So um, uh, we need to. Uh, it's it's basically a mix. I have not come across. U.S. had uh, the this. I believe there was an organization in the states which had come up with uh, a statement against the practice. So mm-hmm. I think we need. To engage our religious you know our religious uh, leaders and 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 get more, engage with them more I, I don't think we have done that enough and i think we need to do that more uh, so that the community will feel empowered to you know those who wish to abandon it uh, will go ahead and and do the right do do what's right well, I th- certainly think your work on this is a huge step in that direction. Shahida Tabawala-Kirtane joining me on the line from India, co-founder of Sahio, an initiative aiming to end this very, very brutal practice about which we're talking right now. Shahida, I know it's very late in the evening in India, but I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. And, and again, uh, uh, there's just w- one message that I, that I mm-hmm. wish to give 
to Cana- to my to Canadians that you know uh, ultimately at the end of the day this is this is a child protection and a child rights issue and it's it's a very universal issue so you know every Canadian should concern himself or uh, or or herself about protecting a child irrespective of you know caste and creed and religion color or in, and even origin for that matter and it should be uh, a Canadian issue everybody should uh, work towards uh, bringing an end to the practice. Yeah, very very great point uh, to end on here, Shahida. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Andrew. Have a, have a great day. All right. All the best to you. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. And I wanted to turn to a case that took place in Ottawa, but has, I think, a much greater significance because it taps along on two very important issues. One, the way that we treat frontline care workers. And the other is the way we treat the people that are in their care, whether we're talking about those in in jails and prisons, whether we're talking about those who are in mental institutions and hospitals and those who are in a hybrid of these systems, those who are in psychiatric forensic care, as was Marlene Carter, the woman who was at the center of this case that had the Royal Ottawa Hospital fined $75,000, three years after a nurse at the hospital's Brockville uh, facility was stabbed and attacked by this particular woman. Now, in the findings about this case, there was from the Associate Chief of Forensic Psychiatry at the Royal, Dr. A.G. Ahmed, a set of analyses, if you will, that were very sympathetic to Ms. Carter, but lacking was, I think, a sense of understanding about the nurse who was stabbed. And OPSU, the union representing this particular care worker, has come out saying that the fine is a slap on the wrist and saying there's a lot of work that needs to be done to ensure that people like this nurse are better protected in cases like this. I want to bring into the show Warren Smokey Thomas, president of the Ontario Public Sector Employees Union, OPSU. Smokey, it's good to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining me this afternoon. Oh, thanks for having me on, Andrew. I appreciate it. So the one concern that I have about Dr. Ahmed's case, and I appreciate, obviously, the commitment to wanting to ensure that patient care is at its utmost importance and, and significance, but there there seems to be this forgetting that there is another victim in this particular case, and I'd say a, a victim who has been ignored in a lot of the discussion about this case, and that is the nurse in question. Uh, yeah, I just want to clear one thing up, though. So we represent all the workers at Brockville, except for registered nurses are represented by ONA. But three weeks, be three or four weeks before this uh, nurse was assaulted, uh, three of our my members who are RPNs mm-hmm. on their unit were assaulted as well. And that gave rise to the, uh, after the uh, Ms. Carter was assaulted, that gave rise to the charge of failing to reassess because in spite of us, the like uh, OPSU and the workers there and the local union, uh, asking for uh, you know something to be done because this patient is quite dangerous. Uh, nothing was done, and of course, Miss Carter paid uh, almost paid a tragically uh, fatal uh, price for that inaction. So, we uh, uh, we we had standing in this case all along, and we were very interested in this. I spent all my adult life working in a psychiatric hospital. I started in 1970, so I've seen all the changes over the you know the last 37 years, which have been many. Uh, but this particular, uh, what's happening nowadays is I'd blame this, Andrew, on years and years of austerity on the Liberal government. There's nothing wrong with mental health reform. In fact, we applaud it. My union uh, led the, the, the drive to have uh, patients uh, 
moved out of psychiatric hospitals, moved into the community. However, uh, the appropriate money and resources have never followed. And they've built all these brand new hospitals. The government invested in infrastructure. Well, one of the ways they paid for those those bills was to cut beds and uh, cut back on staff. Uh, so all the psychiatric hospitals are chronically under understaffed, underfunded, under-resourced, and are very, very dangerous places to work. Uh, we've had nine, eleven people at Waypoint, which is another uh, uh, forensic facility in Penetang, 11 workers in uh, uh, two or three weeks injured, seriously injured, and sent to hospital. Hmm. Uh, so it's, it is a crisis. We talk about the crisis in corrections. Well, there's a crisis in psychiatric hospitals as well. Well, and when we talk about the system itself here, I think it's very important to note that one of the findings that did come from Dr. Ahmed's report on this is that there was only a transfer to Brockville, to the Royal Ottawa Hospital here, because there was no institution in her home province of Saskatchewan that had been able to deal with her. And there was also a great deal of concern raised that there are not female-centered facilities for these cases. There are some options for males, but not nearly as many or, or even any at all in some areas for females who, who are in that forensic psychiatry realm. Yeah, well, you know, it's a serious problem right across the country, uh, and there is a lack of uh, services for, for female offenders who have mental health issues, so are deemed not criminally responsible or convicted of a crime and then discovered to have a mental illness later. Uh, so, no, it, it's truly a pro, uh, an issue coast to coast. And here in Ontario, we've been uh, lobbying for a long, long time to build a, uh, on the correction side, uh, which would be a hybrid between corrections and health care, which is what Brockville is, uh, a facility just for women. And, uh, of course, uh, the government keeps talking about it. It uh, looks, looks like they might move on it someday, but, I mean, we've been after it for as long as I've been uh, uh, been around and president of Otsu and Treasurer before that and on the board before that. So it's been a long, long time. And it does nobody any good. And uh, this uh, the patient uh, uh, certainly doesn't benefit by, you know, uh, injuring staff and then having to live with that as well as anything else that she has done over the years. And, of course, it certainly doesn't help Ms. Carter, who is uh, uh, probably in, in many ways may never be the same. I mean, she just about died. So... Uh, and I sit on a, the government has done one thing, Andrew. On one hand, I didn't want to sit on it, but uh, the president alone bugged me to sit on the steering committee of a violence and health care task force. And so they come out with a whole bunch of recommendations, uh, most uh, they're good recommendations, but you know, the real proof here is in actioning those. And here's where I'll fault the Ontario Hospital Association and the hospitals. They, uh, one of the things that I asked uh, was that they look at uh, is, is there a correlation between decreased staffing levels and increases in, in uh, injuries uh, to staff and or other patients, right? Because patients attack patients as well. And uh, they hadn't done that. And I asked the so I said, well, why? You know, the fellow from the OHA, I said, well, he said, well, we haven't done this. Well, mm-hmm. are you going to? He said, no, we're not. And I said, well, I think you should. So I made an issue of that and the fact that there were no consumer survivor representatives on the steering committee. Uh, to as two conditions to stay uh, involved in the committee. So they've made all these recommendations, but it, it what really became crystal clear to me is, is again, it, it's, it's the years and years of austerity, 
to help fund other things that the government wants to do, cancel gas plants maybe along those <laughs> lines, you know, where they went looking for dollars and, you know, nickels, yep. nickels and dimes everywhere they could find them, you know, the Sam's computer system. So it really and truly is an absolute mess. If the government was to move on the recommendations of this task force, uh, we would see some improvement, not overnight, because, you know, you, you just don't like, it's like the jails, it's just, you don't hire, you know, 100 extra people overnight. But there's resistance in the admin, in the CEO ranks of hospitals uh, to, to change, to hire more. I mean, there's more managers in hospitals than there ever was, uh, and, and I mean more, I'm not talking one or two more, I'm talking dozens more per hospital. And, and fewer frontline workers. So it, it's it, not just about throwing money at it, though. And that's what I find to be the most unique about this is that we're not just talking about a case where you need to dump money into adding more staff, which obviously is useful in these cases. But there are ways that the existing system and existing resources could be tweaked to more adequately meet the needs of the system. And I was looking at, for example, the Royal Ottawa Hospital's uh, takeaway from this. They've increased their staff safety, they've said, by having morning safety huddles where doctors and nurses and staff will assess patients and, and risk, and they have adapted policies and procedures, the hospital has said, from the UK, but uh, they don't seem to be going down the road, or at least as far down the road, that OPSU has called on, which is, I'm just uh, looking at a release here from OPSU, not just um, you know including staff, uh, safe staffing levels, but also security and self-defense training, flagging systems, emergency response alarms, things that would have a cost, but, but would be relatively easy to implement. I mean, self-defense training, that seems like a no-brainer for people that are working around volatile patients. Why is that not more widely accessible or, or deployed? Well, one of the byproducts of mental health reform and the change from you know, focus on uh, uh, you know, institution-based to community-based was they felt that institutions were, were too harsh. So the training, I used to teach the, the management, I used to be a trainer for the management of assaultive behavior, and we actually trained people how to, if you're getting attacked, how to get out, how to save yourself, and how to save others. And it was rigorous. I mean, we had a, a fellow that used to teach the federal penitentiary guards that taught us. But it's not, about, it's not about bludgeoning the patients. It's about oh, getting the staff member to safety. It's de-escalation. Yeah, oh, well, and we all do. They teach that now. But there are times, Andrew, when de-escalation simply, they're not going to de-escalate. And some of these assaults are spontaneous. You have absolutely no warning. And all the warning, well, there is warning, I would say, because you can start, if you know a patient is is uh, prone to attacking people or violent. Which Carter was, so we're talking Carter, about something that would be yeah. applicable here. Yeah, there, then there should have been red flags. There should have been much more caution, you know, around the patient when the patient was out of her room or all those sorts of things. Uh, they've gone to... Like, I'll give you a waypoint for an example. I asked them up there, I said, just hire two or three more security guards to put on the wars. Well, we can't afford it. What are you talking about? A security guard makes about 15 bucks an hour. Are you tell me you can't afford that? And the, the CEO, she was adamant she couldn't afford it. And I, I just looked there, and she said, I'm busy. i got to go to another meeting. She got up and left. And she was on this task force with me. Uh, uh, would never look at me, actually. But uh, so it's a whole host of things. Um, but sometimes, you know, and, and I got, I'll say this about the staff in these places, they are good at de-escalation. 
the public if the public only knew how many times in the day they de-escalate people with talk with listen with caring with understanding with empathy that's a that is a, an hourly occurrence in these places and that's uh, you know trained right into the staff and they're very very good at it but there are times when people do not respond to that and the nature of some people's illnesses causes them to lash out and hurt others there are people on this planet that the nature of this illness tells them to to hurt someone, just as uh, some poor souls, you know, the voices tell them to uh, jump in front of a train or jump in front of a, you know, off a bridge. There's, you know, mental illness is uh, when it gets into the violence range. Is is well, you can predict some. It's not. It's not an absolute science. It's kind of un, you know, it's there's, yeah. there's unpredictability factor. Yeah, but these are the reason that you have things like restraints and sedation yeah. and whatnot. But all of these are, and this is one of the problems of I think the pendulum swinging in the right direction on mental health awareness is that people are also looking at these and and seeing them as inherently harsher or cruel in some cases. And, and I know, and you know this as well, Smokey, that the the, the minute there's a, a story of some staff member using self defense on a violent patient and that patient is injured or hurt in some way, it's going to be the staff and all staff that are under the microscope. Oh, listen, I watched the tape because there's cameras everywhere now, you know, a lot of cameras. And we had a a member who simply put his arms up to stop from being beaten, right, to limit the damage to him. Yeah, that's a very defensive action. You should be able to see that. Guess what? Uh, He got disciplined and fired for excessive force. So we've, you know, and we grieve all that stuff and we win. But uh, that's just, like, so wrong. And, uh, and I've asked these the CEOs, you know, would you, here's the question, if you ever get one of them on your show, Andrew, say, would you have one of your family members work in one of these wards? And they won't answer the question because the answer is no, they wouldn't. So it is, it's, and you're right about that. Well, as soon as something happens, it's the fault of those miserable staff. Institutions have always, I mean, sure, there have been problems over the years, and it is infinitely better in many, many ways. But uh, what one of the things that's been lacking over the last, and it's just been 10 to 15 years, getting worse and worse and worse, is the attention to the safety of the staff and the other patients. Because it's not just staff that get hurt. There are patient-on-patient assaults, which do go unreported in the press. So, because they don't have, you know, a lot of people simply don't have a voice. They don't have a family member that's active in their care. So this, is, so if you were to make the staff safer at work, there was always an inherent risk. I'd never, I worked there in one. I know there is always risk, but you always are on your toes. But if you make it safer for the staff, it's infinitely safer for the other patients as well. Because can you imagine being a patient on a floor with somebody that just stabbed somebody? How, how you know, how keen are you going to be to go out and mingle and mix? And, yeah, well, and know. especially because everyone's at varying levels of their own illness or conditions in that. I mean, some people can engage and want to engage. Yes, but some don't. And yeah, some, some want to and are afraid to. Right. So yeah. there's. But it's a very, very complicated issue. But I guess if I can make a point about this fine, the fine does nothing. It simply comes out of the hospital's budget. If they wanted to do something with that fine, it should have went to the victim, and uh, or victims in this case, or it should go into into uh, uh, addressing some of the um, you know just have to redirect those monies into. Uh, uh, increased training or some something to address the security. Issues. Yeah, it's just going from one level of government to another yeah. one now. Taxpayers, yeah, taxpayers yeah. just paid the fine. It's not nobody. No, and here's the thing: there are some managers who are either inept or don't care, and uh, and some are just in over their heads. But when something, when there is something known to them, it's known to them, 
and they just don't do anything, there should be a penalty for bad bosses. Like, nothing happens to those yeah. managers, except maybe if they... Well, and that's so them. paramount for actual accountability moving forward. I do have to take a break. Warren Smokey Thomas joining me on the line, president of OPSU, the Ontario Public Sector Employees Union. Smokey, thanks for your time this weekend. Oh, thank you, Andrew. I appreciate it. All right, all the best to you, sir. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. There was a story I came across this week that I found to be really interesting, and I'm always interested in nutrition and food-related stories, certainly when we talk about children. And this is, I guess, the closest I'll do to a back-to-school segment this week, with kids going back to school very shortly. This study coming out of the University of British Columbia contends that nutrition for children in Canada actually suffers during school hours. So what's happening here, according to this research, is that kids are not eating enough vegetables, fruit, and dairy products during school hours, which has them falling short of the dietary recommendations on school days. And I want to welcome into the show here a PhD candidate from the Human Nutrition Program at the University of British Columbia, Claire Tugo-Lafleur, who is the lead author on this. Claire, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Great speaking with you. Thanks for having me. So let's... Address first off the question of whether the time of day that you eat something matters that much. If a child is getting lots of fruits and vegetables in the morning before school and in the evening after school, does it matter what's happening during the school day? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, there had been very, very little research actually looking at sort of when consumption patterns over the course of the day. So this was quite novel. Um, this is the only paper really that I was able to find that addresses this question. So what is, I guess, the relevance of that then? I mean, if there is a, a kid who is eating the, the fruits and vegetable intake but not during school hours, what's the impact of that on their, their health and, and overall nutrition levels? Well, so we know that overall when we look at what, consume, what kids are consuming for the whole day, we know that kids are not consuming enough vegetables and fruit, and many of them also don't consume enough dairy products. But when we know what kids are consuming at school, then I think we're better equipped to develop certain national policies, programs, and interventions to address specific shortcomings. So this provided uh, our rationale for, for conducting this study. We already have the daily recommended intake, and I know that the food guide as one sort of part of that is being revised at present by the federal government, but does that really fall on parents to start being more health conscious in their uh, packing lunches for kids and their cooking at home? Is that is that not the first priority rather than a, anything on the national side of things? Mm-hmm. Well, I think parents try to do their best for sure. Um, I think some of the things that have been critiqued with regards to the food guide is that uh, when we look at overall daily intake um, and the number of servings, let's say, of fruits and vegetables that we're supposed to have consumed for the whole day, that can be difficult to apply because people don't necessarily look at or think about what they're consuming for the whole day, but we think in terms of meals or, or snacks. Um, that's how we eat. We eat meals and snacks. <laughs> so I think it's important to look at specific dietary patterns that are happening over the course of the day in order to develop those meaningful sort of suggestions or interventions that people can apply those um, uh, and make up make changes more at you know, at the meal level or at the snack level. I know that this uh, is really based on data from the Canadian Community Health Survey looking at uh, about 4,827 children across the country between 6 and 17. And I guess the question there would be, is there much of a difference between the 
elementary school age children and the high school age children. I mean, keeping in mind that the latter group oftentimes has a little bit more access to unhealthy food through having an income, having a job, leaving on the lunch hour, etc. Or was that not really broken down in this research? Um, so I think that was, you bring in um, an important point, which is the age group was the factor that mattered the most. And, um, and I think it's, I mean, it's something we intuitively know, I think, um, uh, but it definitely was the biggest factor that would explain the variations in, in diet quality during at school. Um, and what was surprising is when we looked at other sociodemographic factors, we didn't find much variations in school hour diet quality. So overall, I think Canadian children have, uh, based on the 2004 data, anyways, there's lots of room for improvement. But certainly there was differences in age groups. And I think it hints at sort of what you've talked about, which is often older kids can have more autonomy with regards to their food choices. They can leave school. And also perhaps back in 2004, there wasn't all those school nutrition policies in place. Um, and perhaps there's more of those school cafeteria or um, food choices that are offered that are not so healthy for the teenagers or the teenagers will grab the unhealthy foods as opposed to maybe uh, the healthy foods that are perhaps available. Insofar as research is concerned, and you're obviously aware of this as a researcher, 2004 is quite a ways away when you have noted there have been some policy changes there. Has there not been any motivation in the last 13 years to have more updated data on this area? Because you'd think with all of the renewed attention surrounding this that there would have been more there, but it doesn't seem like that's been the case. No, and I think, uh, well, as researchers, but also maybe the public, we need to lobby a little bit more for uh, what I call nutrition surveillance at the national level. So, you know, we've only had a couple of surveys in Canada looking at what people eat. And it's surprising when you think that we need to know what people are eating Mm -hmm. We want to develop those those policies. There was, there was one survey in 1970, and then nothing until 2004. And then uh, the Canadian government did a follow-up dietary study, same similar methodology in 2015. Um, and the data for the 2015 survey is only being or was only released this summer. Haven't uh, worked on it yet, but it's my plan look at comparisons over time. Um, it, it is very time consuming when you think about the type of data being collected. Uh, people, it's a lot more complicated. It's not just asking one question, but it's often asking, list me all the foods you ate the previous day. Uh, so it does require a lot of time and, and money. So, but I think uh, we should we should be doing a little bit more with regards to nutrition surveillance in Canada. So obviously you have the 2015 numbers that you're going to be looking into for the for foreseeable future. But where is the the long term approach you'd like to take this field of research? Yeah, well, I think um, certainly comparing the 2004 data with the 10, 2015 uh, survey will be my first line mm-hmm. of priority. But also look at geographical differences across the country over an 11-year period to see what where also the situation is improving and trying to see whether, for instance, are there particular areas in the country where we've seen bigger improvements and is that because there were uh, nutrition school nutrition policies in place for longer during that time? 
And we also want to look at what's happening at the household level. So where are kids, their ki- where are children getting their food from? Uh, who's packing the lunches? What exactly are they packing? Um, I think those will be important questions to ask. Yeah, and that's actually quite interesting that you have all of these different jurisdictions in Canada that have done different things and gone in different directions, or in some not really done anything on this. So you do have an ability to see if there has been really a causational element in these provinces. Yeah, it's what we call, uh, what researchers call natural experiments a little bit. So um, I think it, there's opportunities to take, uh, uh, to look at sort of those variations across Canada. Do you have any expectations at this point of what you might see from the 2004 data to the 2015 data? I would say the only expectation I will have is, well, I'm, I'm optimist, so I'm going to hope that we're going to find some uh, improvements um, in our diet quality scores over an 11-year period, 11 period mm-hmm. because I think since 2004, people have, um, there's been, people think more about food and nutrition, and yeah. I think overall, people are more concerned about, you know, not only what they're eating, where they're, where it's coming from, so I suspect there'll be some improvements um, if we do look at uh, the U.S., there's been some improvement over the last 10, 15 years. Um, Canada's very different, but I suspect we'll, f- we'll find improvements. Um, and I think we'll see a lot of variations because Canada's unique in that we don't have a national school level uh, or national school lunch program. And so there's quite a lot yeah. of variation across the board with regards to um, nutrition guidelines in schools. We shall certainly see. Claire Tugo-Lafleur joining me on the line, PhD candidate at the University of British Columbia with the Human Nutrition Program. Thanks so much for your time this afternoon, Claire, and also best of luck with the rest of your PhD. Thank you so much, and Uh, thanks for having me on your show. All right, all the best. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.